Tyler Mark of the University of Kentucky. What a pleasure and an honor it is to have you with us on Hemp Barons today. Thank you. It's an honor to be here today. You are doing some of the most important work out there as this incredibly versatile and valuable crop uh, reemerges and takes its place in all of the many industries uh, that it affects. And as you well know, those industries, of course, are human and animal nutrition, body care, nutraceuticals and pharmaceuticals, paper, textiles, building materials, bioplastics, uh, bioresins, energy, fuel, industrial sealants and coatings, nanotechnology, somebody stop me. Um, but boy, are you exactly who we need to help us put uh, connect these dots and put the economic pieces together with delivering on the promise of this crop. And so with that, I just want to make sure that the listeners know a little bit about uh, your tremendous background on this subject. Uh, you're an assistant professor of production economics at the Department of Agricultural Economics at the University of Kentucky. Your applied research interests include digital agriculture, simulation methods, broadband availability in rural areas, precision agriculture, precision dairy, dairy policy, renewable energy feedstocks, and the star of the show, hemp economics. Funded projects through the USDA's National Institute of Food and Agriculture, Risk Management Agency, and the National Science Foundation, along with industry partners, of course, provide the resources needed to investigate and address this wide range of topics. I know that your current and previous topics include factors that impact the profitability of Kentucky farmers, broadband internet's impact on precision agriculture data transmission, such an important topic, the economic aspects of hemp productions in Kentucky, dairy policy in the South southeastern United States and the development of the Kentucky economy. Now, you are prolific in your publications, uh, your quotes, your citations throughout all of the various research sites. Your contributions uh, are tremendous, and you, of course, are the recipient of many awards. Uh, your education as well. Um, man, are you degreed up, Tyler Mark. Obviously, your bachelor's came from the University of Kentucky, master's in science of agricultural economics from Purdue, and then your PhD in agricultural economics from Louisiana State University. Uh, man, Tyler, let's start with how do you feel about incorporating hemp into this incredible uh, regime of agricultural economics that you've been working on for some years? Well, the, the incorporation of hemp is kind of an odd story as to how I got into that because uh, really when it comes down to it, I'm just a farm kid from Kentucky. I may have lots of degrees, but, but it really is about giving back uh, to the agricultural sector that uh, gave me so much uh, coming up through uh, school in Kentucky and, and at uh, Purdue and then at Louisiana State University. Uh, but, you know, if I go back in my, my farm's history, my family farm's history that we still have here in the state of Kentucky, you can find hemp production uh, in, that, in that history. Uh, and so being at the University of Kentucky now for about seven years, uh, the opportunity when 2014 came around and the farm bill came around. We passed the research pilot program. I had the opportunity to, to get my foot in the door there. And it's not very often um, as a uh, PhD or as an economist or to, to be involved in kind of the ground level or a crop coming back into production, uh, especially that has a history uh, on my family farm. So that's been uh, kind of a lot of fun to deal with. Um, you know, so I've been working on hemp topics since 2014, 
and that work has really kind of exploded in the past uh, two and a half years. Uh, so, we, you know, I've got lots of projects going on and, and you know, it's been kind of funny because uh, precision dairy, broadband, those things um, probably pre-2014 were taking up the bulk of my time and even into 14, 15 were taking up the bulk of my time. Uh, but since then, hemp has really transitioned to the top of the list. Uh, and it's been uh, it's been a ride. Hempin' ain't easy. Hempin' ain't easy, Tyler. And I'm pretty sure you figured that right at the outset. And so grateful to the University of Kentucky that they're allowing hemp economics to be at the top of your list because agriculture obviously is such a big, big world. Of course, I am a wildcat at heart uh, in that my son, Spiral Horn, just graduated with his master's, uh, his MBA from the University of Kentucky. And we just have tremendous family history uh, there as well. What a hemp state. Now, was it was it a coincidence or was it specific to hemp uh, that you left Moorhead State University in December of 2013 and then moved on over to the University of Kentucky right in the beginning of 2014? Uh, and of course, the 2014 Farm Bill is what made way for these agricultural research uh, pilot programs and in fact defined industrial hemp for the first time in U.S. history, distinguishing it from marijuana or other forms of cannabis. Was that a coincidence or on purpose? Uh, that, that was purely a coincidence. Uh, it really had nothing to do with uh, with my move. Uh, it was just an opportunity to return back to my uh, undergraduate alma mater in a great position and uh, and broaden some of the things I was able to do to, to work with uh, stakeholders throughout the state of Kentucky. Uh, Moorhead was a great opportunity, but uh, it, it's just a different uh, it's a different setting at the University of Kentucky versus Moorhead. Not one one isn't better than the other. It's just they're different. Indeed, and you were just a hundred percent teaching. I think at Moorhead, where you're doing so much uh, research and men some mentoring and teaching at UK. Is that fair to say? Uh, for the most part, yeah. I mean, so I would teach uh, four classes a semester at at Moorhead. Uh, versus, I'm only teaching one, maybe two classes a semester at uh, UK or two classes a year. Um, so that does open up a whole lot of research opportunities and, and other opportunities to mentor uh, students in that space. But uh, I was actually still doing a lot of extension and outreach work at Moorhead State because I had such great connections at the University of Kentucky already uh, from my time there as an undergrad and, and just a number of faculty that I already knew there. So those connections were already made. So, you know, we, we, were, we were working on various projects at uh, Moorhead anyway. Cross-pollination is what it sounds like to me in in so many ways. So let's get right into it, if we could, Tyler. Let's start with what's the largest concern in terms of hemp economics, where we sit today, because we're well aware, and those listeners of Hemp Barons have heard me say over and over, we, of course, have for several years now been asking our farmers to grow a crop for which there's very little infrastructure, and we've been asking entrepreneurs to invest in infrastructure for which there is not very much crop to continually be feeding that equipment. Although, working in tandem, putting one foot in front of the other, it's all starting to come together. That increase is happening. And we, of course, have learned the very difficult uh, lesson that 
extract varieties of hemp uh, will indeed not be saving the American farmer that it takes a little bit of hemp biomass to make a whole lot of hemp distillate for extracts or cannabidiol and, and these other non-intoxicating cannabinoids versus the trillion dollar industries, which of course are in oil seed and fiber, um, which requires infrastructure, right? And not only that, we know very well that what uh, ideally what we want to process the longest, strongest fiber in the world, as well as that nutrient-dense grain, is infrastructure basically within 50 to 100 square miles of every biomass feedstock. So given where we're at in this re-emerging crop, what's the largest concern uh, thus far that you've identified? Well, I, I think when I when I think about this, I think about this in kind of three separate kind of buckets. Um, so the first being a bucket of consumer demand. So, I mean, when we start looking at the demand for these products, uh, I think we saw a lot of uh, phantom, almost phantom demand uh, for the extract uh, sector when we get into that uh, 18, 19 time frame. Uh, so we saw this explosion in demand thought we saw an explosion in demand. We, we exploded the number of acres. Uh, but I think what we're really finding now in, in some of my work is that there's a whole lot of market confusion going on. So consumers really don't understand the difference between marijuana and hemp. And many consumers are not going to consume a product they think is marijuana. So there's lots of this market confusions. I mean, when we do like word clouds with like, what's the first word that comes to mind in hemp? It's marijuana, it's weed, it's, you know, uh, Mary Jane, anything that's in that uh, in that vein. And that, that's really problematic. And I mean, it goes even further when we look at some of the survey results we're looking at when 40 percent of the consumers think that they get high as a result of taking CBD. That that shouldn't be the case. Um, and, and we shouldn't be seeing that in our survey results. So those are a lot of education components that, that I think we've really got to figure out. And the industry has to to grasp for this really to, to move forward both. And I, I don't care if that's on the, the fiber side, the grain side, or the or the extract side, they, they've still got to figure that out for all that. That second bucket is really the infrastructure piece that you're talking about. And how are these industries going to develop? Uh, I was in a meeting the other day and, and in the fiber side, they were talking about these mobile processing units. Well, mobile processing units are really interesting, but from economies of scale to get to the types of costs that they need to get to, to compete with the cottons, the the other crops uh, that are out there, the other natural fibers that are out there, we, we have to think a little bigger than that. That may be an entry point, but it's not going to be a very viable point for very long. Part of that is a part of that is a result of when you have these mobile processing units, you've got to have access to probably phase three power. Well, not all farms are going to have phase three power. So then that changes where you got to put things. So you know, there are some co-op models out there that are kind of interesting to look at that, that could help build out some of that infrastructure. And then on the fiber side, I think at the fiber side, we've kind of done this field of dreams type scenario of we'll grow hemp and people will come just take it. Well, no, because we really need to work backwards from the end product, understanding what the tolerances, standards, those components are and work backwards through the processing at the farm level, how we need to harvest it and the genetics to match that whole supply chain up so that it flows through the supply chain and doesn't just, uh, you know, you have this product that isn't valuable really to any end use because it's just this uh, hodgepodge of things. So I, I think we were really struggling there. 
But in, and then this third bucket is the regulation component. So, I mean, what are we going to do in terms of regulation? And I think to really get the infrastructure moving forward and to really understand the demand, we have to have the right regulations in place. So if the regulations aren't in place and people don't believe the labels that are on the products and have confidence in those, it's really hard uh, to get them to adopt those products. It's also going to be really hard to get those large investors, your your Coca-Colas, your, your Nikes, your Mercedes, those companies to make investments when they don't know the rules of the game uh, that they're getting into. You know, those those are the kind of the three big areas that I think a lot about. Um, and we're, we're trying to really move forward. You know, and, and the other the other bucket, I guess a fourth bucket would be at the farm level of many people talk about growing all these products and all the products you can make out of it. But at the end of the day, these have to provide enough profitability to buy acres away from all these other crops that are out there that are options. You know, we're not seeing that happen uh, across the board yet. Not just yet, huh? And it's uh, that what I've been calling the misguided oversimplification of, of hemp um, that gets in the way, right? Folks, I'm just going to grow hemp and somebody's going to buy it. Or I'm going to grow hemp and make t-shirts. No, you're not going to be both the grower and the, manu- and the, and the processor of the raw goods and then the manufacturer of the temp t- textile and then the manufacturer of the garment itself. You know, all of, all of these things um, are so important. That education piece, uh, it's just tremendous, of course, to see the effects some 80 plus years later, almost 90 years later, uh, of the really effective social engineering campaign um, against all forms of cannabis that really, you know, started in 1930 and then led to uh, the 1937 Marijuana Tax Act. Such a strange word for a tax act. Uh, And it's so fascinating. I don't know if you've ever had the pleasure um, of looking at some of the National Archives uh, transcripts from the three hearings that led up to that 1937 Marijuana Tax Act. Just fascinating to see the transcripts with Dr. Bob Woodward of the American Medical Association. And bear in mind, those three hearings took place after hours, uh, not with due process. So, and having publicly testified myself, as you very well may have. I can almost picture Dr. Woodward sort of running in disheveled after hours, making it to this hearing that he last minute heard about and throughout, especially that first transcript saying, I'm confused why we're using the street term marijuana in these formal proceedings. And I would request that we would use the word cannabis um, in these formal proceedings. But he did not realize that he was but a small cog and a giant wheel that was fixing to roll everything right over. Because of course, my belief is that uh, marijuana was the fall guy for the patents and the corporate special interests that were gaining profitability as we entered our better living through chemistry phase, whether that's petroleum-based synthetic polymers or the wood craft pulp paper-making process or the cotton gin, um, or even as it comes to pharmaceuticals in 1927, of course, was the development of separating salicylic acid from willow bark and making that first 
first aspirin, which became the real first analgesic competition for cannabis preparations. So that whole social engineering campaign that went on from 1930, when uh, Andrew Mellon of Mellon Bank, the then uh, Secretary of the Treasury, appointed Henry Anslinger to be the executive director of the Federal Bureau of Narcotics, which we now know as the Drug Enforcement Administration, uh, began that campaign. Um, and it's just amazing to to hear that these that these survey results, although it shouldn't be terribly surprising to me. Bear in mind, I, you know, I'm constantly floating around in conferences and in the hemp industry and hemp communities where we have a more enlightened crowd. Even newbies are more enlightened. So very conservative farmers um, from very rural areas that have certainly gotten their heads well around the fact that hemp is not marijuana, but so interesting to hear that your surveys are still coming back uh, with that that impact of that very very successful social engineering campaign that again of course was revived in 1970 through the Controlled Substances Act and man do we ever have some work to do as you were speaking Tyler I'm thinking to myself we need to fund a PSA like a national commercial like the got milk and what's for dinner we need the hemp is not marijuana. Something needs to happen there. What are your ideas? Yeah, I mean, I, I think we're going to have to work on it on that front. I think we're going to have to clean up the labels and understand what is actually in these products. I mean, so getting actual the, the human trial pieces done so that we understand what medicinal benefits and non-medicinal benefits are in these products. And I think we have a whole lot of education. I mean, if you want to look at the hemp grain side of things now, Let's let's not say that you won't get any cannabidiols in your hemp grain because they're going to be on the outside of that. And when you press it, you could get very, very low residues in there. But, you know, those are well, probably well below any tolerances in that space uh, that would be required. Uh, but we can't even get the feed grain side of, of this coin in here yet. Um, and, you know, when you start looking at some of these different businesses, if you only have uh, if you once you squeeze the grain, if you've got all this uh, meal coming out of that and you don't have a market for it, that's problematic. You could turn it into protein and you've got some oils and, and all those fun things too. But, you know, you've got to have markets for all these products and byproducts that come out of it. Same thing, you know, on the extraction side. I mean, you, you extract it and you've got spent, uh, you got spent biomass on the backside of that too. That could have nutritional value in it as well, but we know we can't feed those yet. So we've really got to figure out how to get all these different components to where we can make, to where they turn a profit or not necessarily turn a profit, but at least generate revenue and are not negative uh, when it comes down to to the end products. So so we got a long way to go there. But yes, we, we definitely have an education problem. You know, is it a, is it a national uh, type campaign to do this? Um, I, I think that's somewhat of a struggle too, because you have so many different um, groups still in this infant industry trying to figure out who is going to represent the group and where they're going to represent it at. So I think we got to get some of those consolidated down so that there's a common theme and story that finally plays out in this and somebody to actually take the lead and, and run with that. There, there are some groups trying and I'm not going to make any, I'm not going to endorse any specific group, but uh, they're, they're working on it. It's just, it's going to move slowly. Very much so. And it's interesting. Um, and just so our listeners know, of course, food versus feed 
very different words, right? We're talking ag feed for animals versus food for humans. And in terms of hemp grain or hemp seed, we call it grain and it's fascinating. The grain people for years haven't wanted us to call it grain. The nut people haven't wanted us to call it a nut. Uh, it's a seed, but indeed in the industry, we call it a grain. I am part owner of Colorado Hemp Works, uh, which is our nation's first post-prohibition grain processing facility in Longmont, Colorado. And of course, the FDA has deemed grain, hemp seed, hulled hemp seeds, hulled protein powder, uh, hemp protein powder and cold pressed oil or hemp seed oil as grass generally recognized as safe for humans. So we've, we're full on to be able to move forward with uh, that industry. Now, whether or not there is concern over intoxication in that industry, that's another thing, but that's moving forward. Ag feed, and we do lots of information. I'm not going to repeat for the listeners what they hear so often because we're constantly discussing, of course, that there isn't a single ingredient for a single species or subspecies approved yet for the hemp seed for ag feed. Moving forward ever so slowly with that totally different in the EU, by the way. It's just amazing that the EU has has basically just not, they don't have anywhere near the process that we have here with AFCO and the FDA's Center for Veterinary Medicine. Um, but having said that, the supply chain is everything. And that really is your main point here. And uh, not being able to use that meal, that seed cake, which is the co-product that occurs when we press that nutrient dense and omega-3 and six dense seed for oil. That's the co-product. Now, of course, we can take that hemp seed meal and create hemp protein for uh, humans, but that market is not super huge right now, whereas our oil presses run all the time, seven days a week, but that seed cake piles up because while the hemp seed oil market is good, that protein market is still growing. Um, and boy, if we could use it for ag feed, wouldn't that be wonderful? So it Yeah, I mean, I, I think that's the ag feed's a, an interesting piece, but we've also got a whole lot of proteins that are coming into the to the human nutrition side too. I mean, if you look at the plant-based meats, I mean, a lot of those are uh, pea or soy products. You know, there is a potential for this to move into that space, but it's just not competitive uh, in terms of uh, cost to, to move into those yet. So, and I think that's one of those scale issues and the infrastructure issues that we've really got to get worked out uh, to get this crop up to scale to bring that cost of production down to a level that, that is palatable uh, for those types of companies moving into, into human consumption products there. Boy, are you ever right about that, because it's really the super conscious, uber enlightened citizen that is aware of this really, in many ways, superior nutritional profile of the hemp seed. And that is in a position financially uh, to accommodate those prices, because those are the, the healthier choices in many ways that they're making. Now, Larry Smart of Cornell has warned me several times, and I, I just absolutely adore uh, Larry. He's amazing. That you know, that the hemp seed is not the highest 
form of digestible protein, so on and so forth, that it's commensurate with some of these other high protein crops such as soy. But all in all, there is just a tremendous nutrition profile to the hemp seed that I just find to be unmatched. And in so many ways, I mean, even the fact that generally speaking, 60% of the protein that's in the hemp seed is an Ediston protein, a globular protein, which is more easily digested um, in our bodies than, than these more fibrous proteins and uh, doesn't have any trypsin inhibitors, which prevent our bodies from prevent uh, from absorbing protein. It has that full amino acid profile and it's the only seed and nut other than the raw pumpkin seed is my understanding that leaves sort of an alkaline ash in the body promoting a, a balanced pH. So just a tremendous value, but consumer education and that price is everything. The drumbeat um, that I'm hearing you say, Tyler, and of course we know it well, but over and over it is, hemp must be able to compete with the crop that it is displacing in order for it to take the lead. That is the bottom line, whether we're talking about dietary supplements, food, cosmetics, paper, clothing, plastics, all of it. Am I right? That's correct. And I mean, you know, the, this pulls me back to one of the other projects that we have going right now that we actually just got funded from USDA is, is really trying to put together hemp meal to go into the aquaculture space. So that has a whole um, interesting space to get into, right? Because uh, you talk about uh, fish meal is, is made up of some other components, but if we can move hemp into that space, then that really opens that up, that those omega-3s, omega-6s. And by all means, I'm not a nutritionist, um, so so don't get me on that path because that's that's not my specialty. Uh, but we are looking at, you know, in this project, we have the stuff set up to do the FDA trials to get this through, uh, hopefully, AFCO that you talked about earlier and FDA is the whole intent of this project uh, that we're working on. That's led out of Central State in Ohio, but we, we've got that project that was just funded. Uh, I'm really looking forward to getting started on it uh, here in the next year or so and ramping that up. We've got, I think, pretty much everything in place, but we, we've got a whole lot of a uh, whole lot of uh, heavy lifting to do here in the next couple of months to to really get those trials underway. You know, within that, we've also got consumer education pieces that we're that we're rolling out with it. Uh, beyond that, we've got some life cycle analysis stuff. So we're looking at how this impacts the environment and some of those roles. I mean, we hear a lot of anecdotal evidence about it, but can we actually prove it out? And, you know, kind of going back to our early conversation as to what really helps to educate the consumers, I really think that part of that is also a huge output by the public institutions of this country uh, and through the extension system within this country that has led to a whole lot of great work and innovative work uh, being being translated to the stakeholders uh, across the country. And once you get some of those stamps of approval on these things, I think that really helps sell the message as well. And speaking of that, it really, our land-grant universities and our, our public institutions are such heroes and heroines in this re-emerging crop. Are you working with other universities? Oh, sure. Um, so, uh, you know, I've got uh, projects. We've got a cost of production survey that we're going to release nationally. Uh, so you, you're probably familiar with the NAS survey, the, the National Agricultural Statistics Survey that just came out that has uh, yield and acreage to it. You know, I was part of the, I was in the background helping with some of that. Uh, and we have another kind of follow on survey to that, that we're going much, much deeper into the cost of production for all 
hemp producers across the country. Uh, that's another USDA funded project, and that's with partners at Colorado State. Uh, so we're looking at that piece. Uh, I've got partners at uh, the University of Vermont. We're looking at economic impact and how big of an impact this industry does have and can have and trying to put out some uh, basically open access tools so that people can can utilize these tools, modify them for their region or their area, because we're only building them for Vermont, Kentucky, and Colorado, uh, those states specifically right now. Working with the University of Georgia, uh, University of Delaware, and Auburn University on a survey. That's part of that survey, the consumer survey that I was talking about, um, where we look at uh, consumer attitudes, basically, and preferences for these crops. That is a monthly survey. We just started it in February of 2021, and it goes for 30 months. So, I mean, we've still got a long way to go uh, for that, and we're trying to get a, a document out basically at least every quarter, and hopefully we'll get to the point where we can get them out monthly so that people can see snapshots of how the industry is changing over time uh, in response to that. Then I work with the University of Maryland and Drake University in Tennessee, University of Tennessee. Uh, in that piece, we're we're really focusing on some of the contract pieces right now. If you if you're um, a producer in this this brand new crop, uh, the contracts. If you've seen some of the contracts that are in this space, they're actually there's really no standards to them at all, and they're just all over the board, uh, and they vary so much by com by company from one company to the next. Uh, and some of them just aren't worth the paper they're written on, uh, to be honest. So we're really, yeah, we're really trying to, to get out some best management practices on that front. And that also links into the crop insurance piece that we're working on that on with that grant as well, because we know that producers are used to having some sort of safety net in there. Now we have the crop insurance through RMA that's out. There's uh, FSA has their NAP program. There's also whole farm through RMA. So there are a couple of options out there, but they all pivot on, you have to have a contract. Well, right now in the extraction side, a contract, you're probably not going to get a contract because you can. there's so much surplus on the market. Your processors are just going to go out and buy what's on the market versus trying to put together a contract and have to technically owe somebody something. Um, they can just go out and get it as they want it. But I think in the grain and fiber side, we'll see some of those contracts come along. Uh, but the crop insurance programs in those spaces, are they're not probably providing, they're not providing much of a safety net. So how do we modify that to, to look at that? We're also looking uh, at pricing. We've got a small, uh, you know, how do we price this stuff? Uh, right now we're pricing it from a biomass standpoint of dollars per percent CBD. Well, what about all the, what, what, what about all the other uh, cannabinoids and terpenes that are in that? They have some economic value, uh, but we don't, we don't address those. On the grain side, you know, we have pricing it at a dollar per pound. Well, that would be like a dollar per bushel of corn, but there are some oil characteristics in there that probably should be accounted for as well. And what should you get a premium for better oil or, or not? Uh, fiber side, the same thing, because there are the fiber quality are, you know, is this variety being grown for the bass fibers or being grown for the herd fibers? How is the redding done? Because that totally changes the spectrum of quality uh, across that. So we're looking at some of those. Uh, we've also got a small beef study here at the University of Kentucky going looking at uh, feeding uh, CBD and some other products uh, to the beef animals. Now, the, I will tell you that these are very, very small studies, so they're not big enough studies to get into the FDA protocol, but they're pilot scale, I would say, so that we can then spin those into much larger projects that would hopefully then have ramifications for FDA and, and, and getting these feed ingredients put together. And then the 
project I was talking about on the aquaculture side, that's with Central State University, uh, Kentucky State University, Michigan, or uh, not Michigan, Mississippi State University, uh, University of Delaware, and the College of Menominee uh, Nation. So we, we, we've got a whole lot of pieces going on um, across the country and, and trying to partner with, uh, with really good places to do that. Uh, I've been extremely lucky to, to have uh, support from USDA. And I, I will put a plug in here for USDA. I, I don't know that I've ever seen a move as quickly as they've moved on this crop to try and provide infrastructure, not necessarily infrastructure, but uh, research to start looking at what these infrastructure needs are. And I, I think there's probably more coming uh, on that front too. I do too. No, it is absolutely tremendous. We're so blessed and and so grateful for the changes that were made to the USDA's interim final rule. I really feel like we have a, a fantastic um, colleague and partner in the reemergence of this crop with our with our federal agricultural officials. Uh, no doubt about that. Can you tell us? You know, it's just amazing. As much as I am very well aware of what we're going through with approvals for ag feed. I had not even thought about the fishes. I mean, we talk about and we talk about every kind of species, um, including companion animals, of course, and, and dogs and cats and horses that we basically don't eat. But I do not recall the fishes coming into that. So basically what we're saying is we also need approval to get hemp into the fishes, just like we do every other species. Yeah, we do. Um, but, you know, the, the interesting part about uh, the aquaculture space, and especially we're working uh, with rainbow trout, uh, is we can really change, we think we can really enhance their omega profiles and some of the other profiles and that, that gets into that nutrition space. You know, we think we can change those. It, it also relates back into um, bringing back some food sources that uh, our traditional tribal nations and, and even a lot of other parts of the country would have had access to that may not have access to it now just as a result of there's not a whole lot of rainbow trout production or it's not as widely spread uh, as it used to be. So, you know, that's that's another really interesting facet uh, uh, of this project. So. so much so. And I was also thinking, of course, as you were, as you were talking, I mean, we don't even have a grading system, of course, for hemp textile fibers or, or really anything. Correct. No, no, we don't, we don't have any standards yet at that point in time, or at this point in time. I, I think that that's something that will come, but it may need to come a little quicker than many people are thinking about. Mm -hmm. And, you know, and when we, we talk about, of course, uh, the different groups, um, and I look at ASTM as well, of course, uh, American Society for Testing and Measurement, I believe, but just known as ASTM. Um, they, of course, are taking on really tremendous work through that D37 Cannabis Committee. Um, now they can only, you know, deal with one elephant at a time, uh, but certainly that that is on their list. Indeed, though, as you say, and it is not lost on me, needs to come faster than we might be thinking. This it really, hemp is advancing down the field. And if we want to keep it viable, though, those are the systems in place that we're absolutely going to need to have. Those contracts, as you say, um, again, Cornell, so much of my work and my life is in New York. Um, 
I don't live in New York any longer, uh, but I uh, absolutely love it. It, it. I lived there for many years. And Mary Ulrich, who is really in charge of the extension uh, program at Cornell, does she also has an MBA, and she's got some great information out there on contracts for farmers. And uh, when I do events, I've had Mary discuss that because, you know, she's beside herself. And as a New Yorker, you can imagine she's quite upset that these ridiculous contracts are being presented to her farmers um, that are obviously not even kind of fair to the farmer. And and oftentimes almost look like, you know, you can't tell, did a 12-year-old draft this? Was this a project for a high school senior? Or is this just somebody totally unscrupulous? Uh, but in any event, does not resemble an appropriate contract. Correct. I, I am glad that uh, those contracts hitting my desk have slowed drastically since 2019. Uh, and the stories of people calling my office about this and uh, quitting their job and investing their life savings uh, in this. So uh, that was that was a scary uh, a point in time there when when I was getting those calls. And I will say, you know, you talked about Larry uh, Smart at Cornell, and we're, we're putting a lot of pressure on him, too, in his breeding program uh, to, to really think about how we get the genetics right in this space. Um, not only him, but, you know, you got uh, several other companies uh, across the country uh, that are trying to do that. And there are a few breeding programs at uh, public institutions that are trying to get up and running as well. So I'm kind of curious to see what transpires. So now we've got there Cornell at the, the Ithaca or not, uh, not at Ithaca, but up at uh, Geneva, the germplasm uh, storage facility there. Uh, and there's a whole new call that uh, was just awarded, I think. Uh, not too long ago to look at um, collecting all these feral hemp varieties that are across the country so that we have a, a better base of what uh, has historically grown in this country and can we build upon that uh, to, to speed up that breeding process. And that's uh, that really gets into Larry's space and, and a lot of others, but I, it's tremendously important from an economic aspect as well. So much so. And I know that Larry and his wife, Chris, uh, in their free time, that's what they do. They go around collecting feral hemp seeds. So you're either doing it while you're working or you're doing it while you're on vacation. Boy, once the hemp bug bites you, you are bitten. And I'm wondering, have you been bitten, Tyler, by the hemp bug? Um, I, I love working in the space. I'm not necessarily a huge consumer, to be frank about that. But I, I love working in the space. This, the people are uh, extremely energetic and passionate sometimes passionate to a point of, I don't know that it economically makes sense, but if nothing else, if nothing else, they, um, they inspire me and bring great questions, right? They're always questioning everything. And I, I love that. And, you know, they're, they're a great source of uh, research questions for me that uh, have gotten asked. So, you know, I, I look forward to once some of these companies get a little better established to actually have uh, enough cash flow and research R&D arms to, to be able to, to do some of this other work. Uh, I think right now that the industry is still so in, in its infancy uh, that there isn't enough money out there for them to also undertake R&D working with somebody else, third parties to validate a lot of this stuff. And that that's part of the other story, you know, part a piece to the other story about 
uh, getting this crop into the mainstream. So key, so important. And again, and so important that we've got the support of so many universities, such as the University of Kentucky, of course, has been taking the lead since 2014. And from the USDA, as, as we mentioned before. Now, Another topic, um, and you, you've mentioned it before in one of your responses, and I just wanted to pick up on it, and that is as we, when you say labels, you know, people want to make sure they're not getting high, and and basically you were speaking of extracts, dietary supplements, and to some degree even cosmetics. My nana, may she rest in peace, um, you know, I was constantly giving her CBD salve, and of course she was just afraid that that was going to go through her skin and get her high, so even from that cosmetic perspective. But if we could talk a moment about something we didn't see coming, although I suspected it might happen given the tremendous expansion of the definition of hemp that we enjoy and and was passed by the U.S. Congress in the 2018 Farm Bill, uh, which of course expanded the definition of hemp to include hemp's derivatives, extracts, cannabinoids, compounds, isomers, salts of isomers, and, and of course, most of us are well aware that the congressional intent in expanding that definition and in liberating hemp and all of its parts and compounds from the unjust shackles of the Controlled Substances Act, the intention was naturally occurring. The intention was non-intoxicating, but those two words, non-intoxicating, naturally incurring, didn't make their way into the statute. And we've got this thing called Delta-8, these various intoxicating isomers of THC. There are, when we, for all of these years, of course, when we've been saying THC, we've been meaning Delta-9 tetrahydrocannabinol, a specific tetrahydrocannabinol of which there are 31, arguably 32 uh, now. But as science and law and the industry is re-emerging and taking root, we're starting to realize it's very important for us to now specify what tetrahydrocannabinol we're talking about. Well, Thanks to the U.S. Congress, who again intended for naturally occurring, non-intoxicating cannabinoids to be liberated, um, but didn't specify that, we now have intoxicating um, isomers of tetrahydrocannabinol, such as Delta-8, entering the market and derived from hemp. But the key piece there is... Delta-8 tetrahydrocannabinol, which indeed is an intoxicating cannabinoid, it exists only in infinitesimal amounts in the plant as it naturally occurs. There's no commercially viable amount of Delta-8 that's going to naturally occur. What's happening is people are taking their CBD, which is either about to go bad or, or not, and converting the, the cannabinoid, synthetically converting the cannabinoid to Delta-8 TH which has its own issues, particularly with the FDA and with the DEA. The DEA still considers synthetic cannabinoids or synthetic tetrahydrocannabinols, I should say, uh, to be scheduled substances. Uh, The FDA does not consider synthetic botanical constituents to meet the definition of a dietary supplement. And the FDA certainly does not uh, consider products that are being marketed for their intoxicating value to meet the definition of a dietary supplement or a food additive. Yet we're seeing these Delta-8 products just prolifically enter the market. They are 
intoxicating. They are being made available to children. They're being marketed for their intoxicating value. They're even in some cases with these unscrupulous or ignorant sellers uh, being marketed so that they're attractive to children in their packaging. That's causing some issues. You may not want to provide us, but if you would, with your personal opinion, what are you thinking about this Delta 8 stuff, mister? Well, I, I mean, in terms of the Delta 8 stuff, I, I think it adds to that market confusion that's going on. And it only proliferates uh, those components. Uh, that was going to be my my comment was, is that uh, you said commercial. I would say for, there's no economically viable process or amount uh, that's naturally occurring in these plants uh, to, to make it viable. However, I mean, when uh, people are confronted with obstacles, we are great at coming up with ways around. Uh, and, and they'll continue to do that. Um, you know, until until the regulatory body steps in and, and actually does that. I think the biggest, one of the bigger detriments that I see, well, two big things. One thing is, is if it does actually hurt someone and that becomes part of the story, I think that sets this crop back even further. Uh, so trying to find a way to self-regulate that or label that or Trying to get that under control, uh, I think, is one piece that this industry really needs to think about uh, because that's not only going to impact the cannabis or the extraction side, it's also going to impact the grain and fiber side. Uh, it's going to ripple through that. The second thing with that is that really puts this crop in more competition with marijuana. And they are under a completely different regulatory tax uh, uh, banking schemes than hemp. And we could play that out. And now we both end up in the same place. Uh, and there's, I don't think there's a way right now for hemp to generate enough money to deal with some of the tax pieces that are in the marijuana space or the regulatory hurdles that you would have to get over if those two were actually put together. So I think there's some some concerning pieces on that when you start to uh, to to look at that product. And I mean, you got Delta Eight and Delta Ten is on the way, and you know different states are dealing that with that in different ways. You know, and that creates another whole level unplaying uneven playing field across the country as to where does one invest their money? And we talked about infrastructure; it leads back into the infrastructure debate. And you know, if I don't know who the winners and if there's going to be this unlevel playing field, where do I go? And will that that playing field level out or is it always going to be uh, unlevel? So where am I going to make my investment at? So important um, on, on every level. And, and as we come to a close, I'm curious, and you may not have a favorite, but perhaps you have, perhaps you have a top three of those projects you're working on, Tyler, any favorites? Well, I'm a production economist by training. So the, the whole production cost speed piece, I find absolutely fascinating, but I was on the forefront of writing and putting together some of the original budgets for for this crop. You know, not not necessarily. I'm not saying I'm the first one in the country to do it, but we were we were among the first, and uh, we have been the backbone of of a lot of other budgets that have been created at universities across the country. So, and I get lots of comments on those from people across the country. So, uh, that's been a lot of fun to see that feedback. So that's that's been a lot of fun. Uh, consumer side is not one that I typically work in. But the consumer piece is, is fascinating. And then the regulatory component is just, it's its pretty amazing to see because when I, not only was hip growing on my farm, but I grew up in a tobacco space as well. So, and when you start talking about regulation and how that impacted that industry, that was pretty fascinating. And I, I think this crop is going to have some fascinating regulatory history to it as well. 
I mean, there's no other crop that any other producer has to worry about passing a, a, a THC or a threshold there before it even becomes a, if it passes that it becomes an illegal crop and now has zero value, you know, and no way to, to recover from that. You know, those are kind of the three areas that, that I really like looking at. I think once we get into this aquaculture piece, that'll be, uh, that'll be a lot of fun. Uh, but I, I'm still trying to get my feet wet. Uh, so to speak, uh, in the aquaculture space. <laughs> no pun intended there. Uh, and so many puns in the hemp world. Well, Tyler, we're so lucky to have you in hemp. UK is lucky to have you. And we're so lucky to have UK. Uh, cannot thank you enough uh, for your dedication to this work, um, for your passion for this work, and for all that you and the University of Kentucky do. I can't wait to have you back on again, uh, especially as some of these surveys start really um, moving into a, to a more mature phase. Tyler, thank you so much for being with us today. Yeah, Joy, thank you for the for the invite. And, and by all means, reach out to the University of Kentucky. Reach out to me. Uh, look at our industrial hemp webpage. Uh, if you have questions, uh, we're there to help answer those. So Excellent. Thank, thank you. you. And all of that information will be available in this episode at podconnects.com. That's www.podconnects.com at The Hemp Baron Show. Thank you again, Tyler. Thanks for listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. Hi, I'm Gary, and I invite you to discover the Cannabis Podcast, a bi-weekly podcast focused on a Canadian's cannabis culture. I would be the Canadian, and my cannabis passion and culture has been building for five decades. I share that passion for this wonderful plant in every episode, through conversations with cannabis advocates and enthusiasts, stories about the ever-changing legal environment, and some hands-on testing of product in a segment I call Cultivar Corner. The Cannabis Podcast, a Canadian's cannabis culture, one toke at a time.